You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. If you are new, my name is Simon. I am the lead pastor here. I want to thank you for coming. If you're watching online, glad you get to watch online. I know there's so many of you that are traveling right now in the summer and can't make it. So it's a great way that we can serve you. Um, I'll be honest, uh, I'm a middle child, which means I have lots of problems. And so anyone who's a middle child, you understand the pain that comes with that uh, because you have an older sibling and they get all the new stuff and they're, you know, the golden child and they get to do all the fun things. And then you have this younger brother or sister and then they get all the attention and they get, uh, they get babied. And so you're this middle kid stuck in the middle. And you're like, I need attention. And so we'll get it any way we can. I'll just be honest. It doesn't matter how we get it. We'll get it. And so it can be good attention, but it doesn't work as good as bad attention. And so a lot of times we'll go the bad route to get the attention that we desire so deeply. I remember I would do this with my brothers and I would tease them all the time. And and maybe you can relate. There's a game called I'm Not Touching You. Have you ever played that game with a sibling? And it goes something like this. I'm going to get as close as humanly possible to you and not touch you and get in your personal space and make you very uncomfortable. And if you're like, oh, there's a, what's personal space? That means that you have a problem with that and you probably talk too close to other people. And so, but at the end, what would happen is my brothers would get to the point where they're fed up and they would either punch, hit, shove, yell, or do something horrible to me. And then I had this great response because my mom or dad said, what's going on in there? I go, I don't know. I'm not even touching them. <laughs> I am doing all the right things here. And it's this stupid, goofy game that we play because though I am following the rules and not actually touching the person, I have missed the spirit of that rule, which is don't be a jerk to your brothers. See, there's a spirit behind the rules that are being done. And what I was doing is I was playing this legalistic game in my mind and justifying my actions in that moment because I was following the rule as it is stated. Now, why do I share about my problems going to a counselor as a middle child? Well, because this is the problem that Jesus was addressing to these men and women in that day. Specifically, the Pharisees and the scribes, which were the very religious, the, the super religious people of that day and that age that were all about doing the things that God had called them to do. And ultimately, they thought that they were doing right in God's eyes, because they were following all the rules to the letter of the law in a very legalistic way. And so they had justified who they were. And the section that we're in, that we're going to end this topic on, is Jesus' preaching on in the Sermon on the Mount series. That's really where he's at. And he addresses this very idea of legalism and the spirit of what God has called us to six times. And he uses a phrase over and over again to point out the hypocrisy in the hearts of the people and the religious leaders. The phrase is, you have heard it said. So he makes this statement. He's going to do it six times. He's going to address all these different issues that are going on with those people. And what he's pointing to is the law and the commandments, right? Saying, this is what God had commanded. These are the laws that we have. And then he names that ruler, that law, whatever it may be. And then he says, but I say. And he changes it. And he expands on the heart or the spirit of that law and what God would want from his people. 
And we looked at one of these six weeks ago. We talked on the uh, idea of anger and what that is. Now, we need to understand something about Christ and who he is and what he does, but Jesus is always kind of moving away from the action and the issue and moving towards the heart of that action. He's always going to this thing that we would call here at the church the root and the fruit. The fruit would be represented by the things that we do in life, the actions that we do, and the root would be representative of the heart and where that comes from. And that's what Jesus is always moving towards. And today we're going to look at another teaching about this idea as we close our series on Jesus Teaches On. And one thing, if you remember anything at all, as Jesus is taught through this series, he is about grace, he is about mercy, he is about the gospel and the saving men and women who are lost to bring them to him, no matter how deep you are in whatever you're in. So this week he's going to teach on the idea of lust. If you have your Bibles, we're going to jump around a bunch. of There's a lot of little tabs in here today. That means we're going to jump into a lot of verses. You can follow along on the screen. Don't feel like you have to be like Johnny on the spot and get to the verses. If you like to play that game, you can try to keep up. Um, or you can grab a Bible up there. Or you can just listen and hear what God has to say. So we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Just a couple of verses today that we're going to look at. And Jesus says this. You have heard it said... That it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell." Let me pray, and let's jump into this very easy text. Jesus, I thank you for this passage, and thank you for what you're trying to communicate to us. Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts this morning. Lord, I, I know personally so many people struggle with this issue, and I have struggled with this issue. I know that it is something that grips and holds and binds and enslaves so many men and women. And Lord, as we press into what your word is, I ask that you would bring hope to the situation, that you would show that there is freedom on the other side of the cross, and that the things that bind us do not have to control us. I ask that you would go before me this morning, Holy Spirit. If there's anything that I don't need to say that would be distracting, that you would remove it from my notes, my mouth, my mind. And if there's anything that needs to be added in this moment because you need to communicate a truth to someone specifically here this morning, that you would allow me to be an open vessel, a conduit used by you to communicate that truth. We love you for this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So what I want to start with right off the bat is jumping on verse 27. This is my first point is that Jesus is going to be affirming the law. That's really what he's doing in this moment. Um, he says this in Matthew 5, 17, just before he goes into these six statements, right? So he makes this really important statement, and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In that moment, what he's saying is, hey, the law's not bad. The law's not wrong. And how do we know that the law's not wrong and bad? Because it comes from God. God is perfect. He is holy. He is just. 
us in every way. Anything that comes from him is likewise. And so he's saying this is good. This is from God. Um, if you start to think about the laws in the Bible and all those things, there's a lot of uh, interesting laws that take place in there. But if you go to the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, if you start to break those down, uh, you look at them and go, these aren't horrible laws. They're, they're not over the top. They're not super weird. You'd probably say, yeah, I kind of agree with all of those things. The first half really has to do with like how we interact with God. And the second half is how we interact with other people. And you'd look at that and go, that seems acceptable. That seems like something that makes sense. If you think about the law in the Bible, the, the Bible has a lot to say about the law. Not only does it give the laws, it talks about the heart of those that love God and how they view the law. Do you know that the longest chapter in the book of the Bible is Psalm 1? You're all so smart. 119, that's right. The entire chapter, which usually goes about two to three pages in your Bible, depending on the font size. If you're like me, maybe it's like five pages. But the reality is it's all about King David talking about how amazing and how wonderful God's law is and how it is a blessing to us and how it's something that God has given to us not to oppress us, but because he loves us so desperately. The longest chapter in the Bible is about how great God's law is. Yet, we would say, yeah, it's great. But don't we all just struggle with it? Don't we just all struggle with trying to keep it? Trying to follow these, these rules that are actually good for us, that, that God has given us as a blessing? But the problem is at times we can't meet them so we can play one of two games. We can get really, really depressed. Or we can just say, well, no one can keep them. So you know what? They're just null and void. We don't have to worry about them anymore. But that's not true. Just because we don't have the ability to keep God's law doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be engaging in it at all. As a matter of fact, all it shows us is that we're incapable of meeting it and we need somebody else who can. And the reality is this, is that's exactly what Jesus did. And that is why I said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to meet every single law and standard and thing that God would want in my life perfectly for you. And as he moves into this idea of the law of adultery, he's talking about a covenant, and I'm not going to go into it a ton, but we just spoke about this very idea and why adultery is so bad in marriage and what that looks like when we did our Jesus Teaches on Divorce series. And I would say, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that. But the big idea is this, is that God makes a covenant, the greatest of all agreements between two parties, and it shan't be broken. And our marriages reflect that as well. And so when we then exist in that way, we're representing God inappropriately in that. And it says something about the covenant. So that's what it's about. So I want to go to my second point, which is the heart and the root. So as I said before, Jesus is always moving away from the action and he's moving towards the heart of that action. Um, the people of that day, they really understood keeping the law. These were the Israelites. These were the Jewish men and women. They had God's law. They studied it all the time. They'd sit underneath it. It was read to them. And so they knew it. It was a part of their culture. And so they were good at keeping God's law because they were reminded of it all the time, constantly, all the time. And, and what we find is that 
they were adhering to the actions of it and they were doing parts of it, but there was this thing that God was more concerned about. It says, your hearts aren't right in it. He, God is always after your heart. He's always after your intentions and your desires. And he knows when you're just going through the motions. Now, I, I'm going to share this, and maybe it's a confession for somebody else, but I'm going to share it. My wife really likes pickleball. She has drinking from the Kool-Aid of everyone who plays pickleball that it's, you know, life-size ping pong is the greatest sport that's ever invented. And so she wants to play. She goes to the Y. She goes and competes. She's like, oh, I'm so nice. And then she demolishes people, and she feels better about herself when she comes home. But I'm not so much into pickleball. It's not my forte, I, I, but I'm trying, right? And so my wife is always like, hey, boys, we're going to go play pickleball. And I wonder, is it self-serving because she needs the practice to whoop on us so she can go whoop on other people? I'm not sure, but she has us go, and we go at different times. So every Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and birthday, we have to, I mean, we get to go play pickleball. And so as I'm playing this game, I'm not really into it. My heart's not into it, but I'm doing it. And so it's like, oh, it's out of bounds. Oh, I missed that one. Oh, you pickled me. Oh, nice dink. And so I just, I'm not, my heart's not in it. She knows that. <laughs> she understands that. And she's like, you're not showing me the love that I want. And it's almost as if it was worthless for me to even go, right? Because my heart's not in it. And this is exactly what's going on as Jesus is dealing with these men and women. He's like, you're doing these actions, but your heart's not in it. You don't really care about the law. You're just trying to do the thing that'll get you out of the trouble. You don't care about me. You don't care about who I am. And then as Jesus presses into the idea of adultery, of most, and most people in that day weren't committing adultery at some level, he says this, but I say, if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. And with this statement, we're all really uncomfortable. Because let's be honest, at some level, we've all fallen into this trap. Men, women, you've looked at another person and gone, oh, hi. And you play a film in your mind of where you want to go with that. Or you focus on a certain body part because that's where your eyes are drawn. And we start to feel this guilt, this shame, this tension. And it's, you know, it's a little tense in here right now. Everyone's like, oh, I don't want to talk about this because this is what I'm dealing with. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it either. Well, I'm reading the Bible, so I have to. This is what we're doing today. He, why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he just let it be? Because all sin has a starting point. It all starts someplace. And Jesus is not going to mess around. He's going to get right to the point immediately. It starts in the heart. See, our little hearts, they're sin factories that are constantly producing sin from our desires. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows us. You know why he knows us so well? Because he made us. He understands who we are. He understands how we struggle. He understands our desires, our passions. In Mark chapter 7, he would actually talk about our desires and our passions and where all these things in our life come from. You ever say, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just said that. And I go, I can because that's who you are. You're like, no way. I got a verse. Mark 7, 20. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Where does sin come from? Our heart. It comes right out of us. That is the problem. Jesus gets us because he made us, and he knows that we have a heart problem. That is the core of all of this. When sin came, it stained and ruined and wrecked everything. We have broken hearts, meaning we have broken desires and intentions. Adam and Eve, in that moment, had to make a choice. I am either going to believe and trust God, or I'm going to try to pursue something else that my desires want, which is to be my own God, to be in charge, and do as I please. That's what it wants. And they rolled the dice, and it didn't go well. And we have been doing the same thing ever since. All of our sins are about pursuing other things that we think are better than God, that we can do life without God on our own, and it will be great. That is the great lie that the enemy feeds to us constantly. And you can plug in any sin you want into that. It's always about trying to do life on your own outside of God that will bring you better pleasure than who he is and what he says he has for you. That's what it is. And so as we think about how that plays out, watch the evening news. Can we just watch the evening news? Because the evening news is the highlight reel of sin in our hearts on display for the entire world to see that's running your life without God and what it looks like. That's what it is. Well, it's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. And these issues, this issue that Jesus attacks in this section, this idea of lust, our desires, our passions, this, that's the problem. Do you realize that lust is completely and utterly selfish. You ever thought about that? That's what lust is. It's all about selfishness. It's that I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, for my own gratification and my own pleasure. And I don't care who it affects. I don't care uh, what they have to go through. As long as I get what I want in this, whether that's thought or deed, I'm happy. I'm fine. I don't care about you. Because what happens in that moment is it doesn't look at that other person as a person at all. It's actually about devaluing them. It's about taking away their worth and their dignity. Because you're here to serve me. You're what I need right now. And I want that. Um, I'm not going to say anything that's groundbreaking here, but I, I was going through a Forbes article this week, and they wanted to get to how much money does the, the porn industry actually make? And there's a lot of numbers that have been thrown around, and some are, you know, really inflated, and some are underinflated, but they're like, we just want to know. And so they went, and they did a study, and so Adams Media Research, and Forrester Research, and a couple other communication industries did a report, and these are the results that they came up with. Adult videos make between $500 million and $1.8 billion annually. Just annually, okay? The internet. It's going really well. Uh, $1 billion annual is what it makes in online pornography. Uh, Pay-per-view is apparently down because of the internet, so it's down to one, uh, $128 million. 
Magazines are still doing well. I found that very interesting. $1 billion in magazines with pornography. So yearly, the pornography industry makes somewhere around $2.6 billion to $3.9 billion a year. And you know what's really fascinating about this? As I thought about this, as I looked at this stat, as I was kind of digging into it, you're like, well, people say, well, no, I don't need that, and I don't have a problem with lust, and, and I'm content with where I am. You know what the Bible says? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So apparently, we're really looking for something still, aren't we? We're still looking for something that's going to satisfy us in some other way than what God has designed. As we look at God's design for marriage and sex and how it is supposed to play out, we're saying, no, no, there's something better. And I'm going to go seek that out. And I'm going to pursue that thing that I think is better than what God has designed and made. Because I think God's wrong. I don't like this idea of a covenant, one man, one woman. I don't like that. I'm going to go get what I want, and I'm going to get it now. And so many men and women, and the rise in the amount of women that struggle with this right now is mind-blowing. So many men and women struggle with this very thing. And if you are in this world sure you feel trapped and lost and shame and guilt, that you feel the draw to it, that there's an addiction, that there's something about it, that there are, there are chemicals released in your brain that have the same power as heroin, as the dopamine washes over your brain that creates this psychological and physiological addiction towards seeing that because it, it, it actually brings some kind of joy, but it's this, it's this very temporary joy that only lasts for a second, you know how, and then all of a sudden you feel like garbage afterwards. Like you speak like you're talking with experience. I am. I am speaking of experience. I have dealt with this. This is the reality of like, I can tell you from personal experience how horrible this sin is. The damage that it does, how you feel trapped so desperately in trying to get out, and you make a step, you're like, I'm not going to do it anymore, and then you, you don't for a week or two, and then you do again, and you go back and forth and back and forth, and you feel like, is there any way that the gospel actually works? Am I the only one that's felt this way? There is hope. You have to hear me. There is hope from this sin. There is hope from this addiction. Jesus went to the cross. He conquered death and he conquered sin. If he did that, he can conquer this sin in your life. He can conquer this problem that you're struggling with. You don't have to be a slave anymore. He provides a way for freedom. He provides a way to escape this. And you're like, you're so passionate right now. I am because there is hope on the other side. It is not hopeless. The enemy wants you to think that this is just life and it's okay. You know, the thing is, God offers something better than lust. So much better. You know what it's called? It's called love. And though love and lust may have the same amount of letters in it and they may start with the same letter, they are so, so different. And their focus is so opposite of each other. Love gives. Love is patient. 
It's respectful. It's selfless. It's honest. As a matter of fact, if you go to that one verse that we all think we're thinking of right now, which is in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Are we all thinking of the same verse? The Bible talks about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is the love that we're talking about. But the problem with lust, it's the complete opposite. If you look at the, the list of lusts, it takes. It takes away. It's for itself. It's impatient. It's selfish. It's driven by desires. And it's not loyal. It's not loyal at all because if I don't get what I want, I'm out. Gospel shows us this kind of love on display, doesn't it? That Jesus was being worshipped in the throne room of God and says, and yet he came down and humbled himself and became a human. Not to be served, but to serve. That he put aside his wants, his desires to serve one who needed help. We are the ones who need help because of sin, because of our brokenness, because of our, our hearts that are utterly depraved in every single way. God knew that we had no ability to save ourselves in our own power, that even when we think we were following the law, our hearts are broken and wrong and we're still breaking the law within it. He says, I will come and I will fulfill the law. I will live the life that you couldn't live. I will then become a substitution for you and I will go to the cross for you as a perfect sacrifice. I will absorb the wrath that you have rightfully deserved. I will take that place. I will take the punishment. I will give you life. I will give you my righteousness that anyone who has placed their faith in the life of Jesus Christ for salvation will be free. That is love. Selfless love. And as we move to the backside of this passage, Jesus is going to give us two examples. One about temptation and one about actions. He's going to use these verses that feel really weird, but the first one is killing temptation in verse 29. The following two verses can seem kind of crazy at first glance. Can we just own that? Like, before you go grab a stick to poke out your eye and a knife to cut off your hand to get rid of sin, just bear with me and we'll talk about it before you start mutilating your body. What Jesus is saying here is a dramatic exaggeration of a figure of speech. That's what he's doing. Jesus is not calling you to mutilate yourself. And there are groups that's at different points in history that took this verse like, well, yeah, this is a literal verse. And that's what they did. That's not what it's calling to do. But what it's saying is this. It's highlighting the seriousness of sin and the eternal ramifications of if sin is not dealt with, that there is a hell that we will have to go to and be separated from God. It's serious. We play with sin like it's like a, like a, a pet puppy. It's so cute. It's so fine. Imagine doing that with a lion club. It's so cute. It's so fluffy. And then one day it's huge and eats you. That's what sin is. That's what it does. It lets you get comfortable with something that is extremely dangerous for you that will ultimately kill you. And so what Jesus is going to do is going to say the eye, which has been called the window to the soul, 
Or as we said a few weeks back, the eye is the lamp of the body in Luke eleven thirty four through 36. It lets the world into our lives and guides the actions that we take. See, the eye is the place that moves to the heart and tempts us to live out those desires. Where do you know that the heart is a broken, wicked place? Jesus told us so in Mark 7. Well, James would go on to say a little bit more about that as we look at that. And in James chapter 1, 14 through 15, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we know where it comes from, and we know that there are these lures in life that are trying to pull you away. If you've ever gone fishing, it all revolves around the lures. It's very rare that you just throw a hook in there with nothing on it, right? You have to put something on that. I remember I went to Idaho for a fly fishing trip, and we drove out in the middle of nowhere, and we get there, and he's like, all right, here's your lure for the day. I'm like, well, I got lures. He's like, no, your lures aren't going to work. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, you don't understand. The time of year, the time, type of fish, the river that we're in, the, 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 the bugs that exist during this time and the stage that they are in their lava stand, this is what they look like. So you're going to take this little red dot, you're going to stick it on a hook, and you're going to catch a bunch of fish. I'm like, you're insane. And then I pulled like 13 fish out of the water with the same hook. Well, I didn't even break it once. I'm like, all right. But guess what? That's how the enemy is with you and your desires and your sin. The enemy has custom-made lures in life for you. And he throws them in. Click, 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 click. Click, click, click. And he's just going to hook you. You know what's funny? Every fish is like, well, that looks good. Don't they? That looks great. As a matter of fact, that's going to benefit me greatly. And then they bite it, and then they are not benefited greatly. The fisherman has benefited greatly. And that's the whole point. When we see those things that we desire, it tempts us to believe that they will be good for us. And so we pursue it, not realizing that the enemy is catching us on the hook. And lust is just like that. Your passions and desires. It doesn't have to be lust, by the way. It can, be, it can lust after a lot of different things. So if you're not struggling with that, you're not off the hook. Pun totally intended. So what Jesus is saying, that this is temptation in your life. If you understand what you allow in your life, it will help you to battle what's going on in your heart. Job actually dealt with this, and he talked about it um, in his life towards the, the tail end of the book of Job. In chapter 31, verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Meaning, I'm not going to look at other young women. I got a wife. I'm going to tell myself, eyes, you don't get to look at other women. You're not going to do that. Then he said, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. Do you see what he's saying? That the eyes are the window that allows it to come in. And as we are talking about this very idea that was in James 1, 14 through 15, what it's saying is like, you will see that thing, you will desire that thing, and if you allow the desire to give birth, it'll give birth to sin. And sin, when it comes to full, is death, which is separation from God. Do you see what he's saying? It's like, if you can stop this ahead of time, you're going to save yourself from the pains that are going to come with this sin. 
You have to think about what do you linger on? What do you look at? Now, I want to I say something. You're like, so I can't look at a woman ever? I need to wear like, special goggles and stuff? No. No, you don't. There's a difference between seeing and looking. And if you don't know what that is, come on. Seriously. You can walk down the street and say, that's an attractive woman, and keep walking. You can do that. That's not actual sin. And you go, that's an attractive woman. That is an attractive woman. <laughs> that is looking. <laughs> you have moved to a new place. That is not a good place. There's nothing good there at all. Because then you dwell and then you linger and then you roll the little movie in your brain that allows to go wild. My I got a couple questions. Have you made a covenant with your eyes not to lust after others? Have you thought, this is so dangerous, I'm going to tell myself, no, we're not doing this. We're not, we're not playing this game. I'm not going to, I mean, I do this all the time. Maybe, maybe you guys wonder. Maybe I, Some people make me nervous. I put my feet over the edge all the time when I preach. Have you noticed that? I don't know why I do that, but maybe I'm just a thrill seeker. <laughs> don't do this with sin. <laughs> there will come a day where I'll fall. And you'll all laugh at me. I'll be fine. I'll be highly embarrassed. And then I'll never do that again. Don't do that with sin. Don't play that game. Let me, what would it look like to change the things that you let into your eyes and your vision? What would that look like? What, what would it look like to let go of this thing that you let things in your eyes? Like, would it change where you go? Would it change the places that you frequent? Because those things are there as temptations? Is it what you let into your eyes when it comes to movies? TV shows? Magazines? Books? What are you allowing into your eyes? I'll be honest, I love movies, but I got to a point where I'm like, I just can't watch movies with nudity in it anymore. I just can't do it. It's not worth it. We just saw a, a movie just recently, and there was some in there, and I just, I'm just staring at the ground. I'm like, gosh, why is this stupid scene here? Good movie, dumb scenes. And, and I'll tell you this. My boys were with me, and you can judge me all you want, but my boys were looking down too. Because my boys understood how dangerous that is to have that, let that into your life. And though I was ashamed because I'm like this movie and this thing's happened, I'm also proud at the same time. I'm like, my boys understand that like, this is a dangerous game. I don't want that in my life. Maybe it's who you engage with. That person at work that you keep walking by their desk all the time. That neighbor that you find yourself outside in the front all the time trying to make sure you can have that conversation with them. Maybe it's that person at the gym that you go to that you're like, oh, what are you doing here every day at the same time every week? Me too. And you're thinking, well, you know, I can't stop my job. I can't stop, you know, being on the internet. I can't stop having a phone. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You, you don't have to go to that gym. And I'll be honest, well, my you can quit your job. You can find another job. You, you don't give me these, well, I have a phone, you know. They make phones that you know that you don't actually have to have internet on them. It's crazy. They make phone calls. <laughs> it's bizarre. 
Well, I have a computer and I'm on the computer all day. That's great. Do you have uh, any accountability program software on your computer? They make great software at triplexchurch.com. You can actually put someone's name in there and anytime you look at anything that's remotely uh, inappropriate, it sends an email to the person you've designated and then they call you. That's fun. (laughs) Guess what works? That. (laughs) What I'm saying is this, is you have a choice in life. You can decide what you let in to your life. And what Jesus is saying is that nothing is worth causing yourself to move towards sin. Nothing. It is the thing that separated us from God. It is the reason why Jesus had to come and die on the cross for your sins, not his own. We never give sin a foothold in our lives. Your eyesight is not even worth sinning. That's the big idea. That's the exaggeration point. No show, no movies, no person, no nothing is worth it. Now, the, the last point that I want to make is the idea of killing sin. Um, and he talks about cutting off your hand. Hands are usually associated with our actions and what we do, aren't they? And it actually talks about the right eye and the right hand. It's actually very important that he says that because most of us in this room, except for those weirdos who are left-handed, are right-handed, right? We are right-handed. So to cut off your right hand is what? Kind of a big deal. Kind of makes everything super tough, doesn't it? That's the point. And he says, you have to kill it. Colossians would actually give us this, uh, this idea that's laid out. Colossians 3, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. These are talking to Christians. We don't do that anymore. We put off the old self. We're putting on the new self. Being, which is uh, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Do you understand what he's saying? We have to kill that sin. If you are in that, you have to kill it. Some of you are knee deep in this sin. Some of you are like, I am stuck, Simon. I am trapped. It has control over me. We have to do what the Colossians say. We have to kill it. Um, I talk with people all the time, and I talk about, hey, you need to repent of your sins. Like, I do that all the time. I repent constantly. It doesn't do anything. So, well, explain to me what you mean when you say you repent. Well, I do this sin, and I usually get caught, and then I feel really bad, and I don't like that. Like, wow, that's not repentance. I'm like, that's just feeling bad that you got caught. That's just some remorse. Like, well, what is repentance? And repentance is very interesting. And I want to give you a little bit of a picture here. So that, let's say this is God. Okay, Bible's there so I can make that work. That's God, okay? And then over here is sin. And, and that's just sin. Do you realize there's this thing? You can either go towards sin or towards God, but you can't go both directions. I don't have the ability to do that. You have to choose something. So when we choose sin, when we choose lust, when we choose our passions and desires, we are doing something. We are turning our back on God. We are rejecting God, His ways, what He believes, what He says, and we are moving towards sin. 
This will bring me joy. This will bring me hope. This will bring me satisfaction. This will be good for me. There comes a point when God puts conviction in our heart do we realize what we're doing. Or we realize that sin doesn't actually fulfill. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring hope. As a matter of fact, it brings shame and guilt and, and heartbreak and hurt and pain. And there's this moment where you say, God, I am wrong. We name the sin. I'm sorry that I was lusting after something. I'm sorry that I was pursuing a relationship that I shouldn't be. Will you please forgive me? And in that moment, what we do is we do a 180. And now we turn our back on sin. And we start moving towards God. And we move away from sin. That means that we stop doing that sin. And some of you are like, Simon, I'm stuck in this sin that we're talking about, but I keep doing this. I feel like this is all I'm doing all day long. I'm going to sin. I realize it's bad, and I go back this way. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't stop. Don't stop rejecting it. Don't stop turning back to God every time. But I want to say there's some things that might be missing in that process of your repentance that might be helpful. I'm going to give you four things. One, the first thing is we need to confess it to God. Confess that sin to God. Let him know. Name the sin. Name what it is. Put light to it. Give it a title. Give the thing that's killing you a name so you can hate the thing that's killing you. Okay? Name the sin. The next thing we want to do is we want to lay truth over the sin. We need to know what God's word says about that sin. If God's word is truth, we need that truth. So we pursue truth in that moment. Um, throughout this series, I've kind of given you guys these little studies. It's a, it's a six-day study is all it is. It just takes one verse every day, and then it asks you seven questions about that verse. This one is on sexual purity. And I've put those in the back. You can grab those. Um, hey, here's something. If you're some kind of weirdo, don't look in the back to see who's taking them. Don't be that guy. Like, it's already enough shame and guilt involved in it, right? Just know that there's someone who just, who's, who's pursuing what it means to follow after God and to chase God. So we lay truth over sin. How do you kill sin? By laying truth on it. How do you get rid of darkness? By putting light on it. That's what we do. The next thing is you want to tell a trusted, godly friend. You want to seek someone out who knows the gospel, who knows Jesus, who loves the Lord, who can walk with you through this. You need a partner. We are not meant to do life alone. Amen? We need people to walk with us. I've had a lot of great godly men walk with me in my struggle through this area in life. And it's not the silver bullet, but a boy having someone praying for you, calling you up randomly, asking you questions, knowing that you've got someone in your corner, that you're not alone. It is so helpful. The enemy wants your sin in darkness and away from him. That's what he wants. And the last thing is that you have to do this. You have, this is a hard one. You have to walk in your newness. You have to walk in the promise that God has given you that sin is forgiven. The enemy will keep saying, no, you're too dirty. You're too wicked. You've sinned too much. You're too horrible. You're not, you're not loved by God. The Bible tells us that when we confess our sins to Jesus, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's been removed. And that you are a new creation that you are a new being. You've laid your sins at the foot of the cross and they are dead. I want to end with this. As Jesus does these six different things 
in this section that I talked about earlier that he kind of says, you know, you have heard it said and I say, he's doing one important thing. He's highlighting the fact that every single one of us cannot meet God's law. Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not anybody. And what he's saying is that because of that, we all need him. And at the root of the problem of this issue is a broken heart. Do you know what Jesus gives us when we come to him and we lay our life down on the cross? He gives us a new heart. A heart that now beats for the things of God, empowered with the Holy Spirit, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we can live a life. It's funny, I'm not going to go into the verses, we don't have time for it. But... There's this section in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. It says, flee from sin. It's one of the only times we see this section. Like, run away. Run as fast as you can from this. Don't fiddle with it. Don't try to stand up against it. Run. Run from that sin. And you can with a new heart. And if you are stuck in that spot, I tell you this. You give your life to Jesus Christ. He gives you a new heart and he allows you to fight this battle, to flee and to run and to rest in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And anyone who calls upon his name will be saved. Let me pray and we're gonna move into a time of communion.